my husband and I love to travel. And what we have started doing is buying a book um, that's representative of the place that we went to. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Our topic for today is stories about immigrants and refugees. So I thought I would start us off with some stats. <laughs> um, so I've got some stats from UNHCR and uh, Government of Canada. Did you know that there are 79.5 million forcibly displaced people worldwide? These are stats from 2019. And 26 million of those are considered refugees. And 40% of displaced people are children. Uh, again, with 2019 stats, in 2019, Canada welcomed over 341,000 permanent residents, including 30,000 resettled refugees. Why I love literature uh, with stories about immigrants and refugees. I think it is uh, the ultimate practice in empathy. I think it's just a wonderful way to learn about people from different places. You know, something that maybe you're not interacting with people from all around the world every day. And it's just an opportunity to learn and hear those stories. Uh, it also, I think, is a chance to reflect on your own identity. Of course, here in Canada, unless we're Indigenous, we all uh, have immigration in our family history. Uh, so it's a great opportunity to think about uh, and reflect on your own identity. So let's hear what our panelists have for us today. Virginia, you're up on the screen. So why don't you start us off today? Yeah, so I am so excited to talk about this book. It is the amazing Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nayari. This book won the 2020 Prince Award, which is given by the American Library Association to the best young adult book. And I remember hearing the announcement that morning and I was like cheering in my house and I realized, wait a second, it's six o'clock in the morning. You should just not make so much noise. But I was so happy for him. I think he totally deserves it. And let me just start by saying, first of all, that please do not let the fact that it's a kid's book or sometimes people consider it as a teen book, please don't let that stop you from reading it because the language, the story structure is so complex and so multi-layered that I think anyone will enjoy this. It is such a well-written novel. And like a good Pixar movie, you can appreciate the story on so many different levels. And I think doesn't matter what age you are, you will really find this book an amazing, fascinating story. And like Fiona just mentioned, it is definitely one that will make you realize what it is like for people that are different from you and, and create that empathy. I think this book does it so well. This is a autobiographical fiction, according to the author, because the story of Daniel, our main character, 
it is indeed the story of the author himself. He went through all of this. It is all true. The story starts when we meet Daniel and he is 12 years old and he is standing in front of his class and his teacher talking about his family story as part of sort of the class assignments. So he started talking about what life was like with his family back in Iran, how he lives, his family, his father, his uncles, his grandparents. He has people around him and he lives a pretty good life. But then his mother decides that they have to leave Iran because she is a Christian and that is a no-no in Iran. And the secret police is always watching. And they would just nap people off the street, throw them in a room and interrogate them, trying to make them confess and rat out other people that are practicing and, and gathering in the secret churches. And his mother knows that one day they're going to come for her. So she knows she has to go. She ended up taking Daniel and his sister, leaving their father behind in Iran and seeking asylum. Eventually, they made it to Italy in the refugee camp. And there, the Italians, you can tell they do not want them to be there at all because they refuse to speak Italian to them. They speak English to the refugees because they don't want you to learn Italian and learn their language that you end up settling in Italy. That's how much they don't want you to be there. Eventually, they made it to Oklahoma in the States. This is where Daniel lives now and his family. And they live with his stepdad, Ray, who is also from Iran. And Ray is supposedly a black belt, taekwondo master. But it seems like the only uppercuts, the only special kicks that he does is only used on single mothers, like his mother. And for the longest time, Daniel believes that it was his fault. It's because his mother believes that Daniel needs a father figure. And that's why she's willing to stay with him. And Daniel lives with this guilt for like the longest time. As he is telling the story about how rich life is, is Iran, all his classmates, his teacher, they just look at him and they're like, no, no way. You're making all this up. These are all lies. Like, look at you. You're a poor refugee kid. You smell of onion and garlic and you take the poor kid's bus. You live in the apartments. Like, no way your story is true. And they just refuse to believe him. Especially when Daniel tells the story, it is weaved in with Persian mythologies, with stories from famous epic poems, and also these legends of his family members from generations ago. Not only is the story seems implausible because they, are, they just seem like he has such a good life that that, that can be, but also that the way he tells his story, his classmates like, wait, what? I don't get that. What is that again? Well, who's this cousin? Like, what are you talking about? And, and they just want him to get to the point, but that's not how his story works because even if he is telling about an anecdote, even if he is just making an observation and insight, all of those little bits and pieces made up his story. It is all part of him. And he just wants you to realize that there is no single story for 
any immigrant, any refugee, they are all this complex person made of all these little parts. In fact, the book itself doesn't even have chapters. It's just this all one long story and him telling you that story. And Daniel imagined himself to be like Shaharasad in 1001 Nights, that as a storyteller, he's telling stories to survive. He's hoping that by the end of it, that you will realize that he is a person just like you. In the book, there's a line that I, when I read it, I was just like, yeah, that's exactly how it feels like as an immigrant myself. Like, even though we have completely different circumstances, I I can totally understand what he means. He said, a patchwork story is the shame of a refugee. And that line works in so many ways, not only because when you come to a new country, you don't know what to pack in some ways, metaphorically, you're like, you forget that there are certain memories that you should have treasure and and remember, but you don't, you don't remember to bring them with you. So as you're even trying to recall those stories, it's disintegrating in the back of your mind. Not only that, your family is disconnected from the line of your other family members and from from your family friends, You're, you're alone. And so when you're trying to figure out, say, Hmm, I wonder what happened, like, you know, like, what's my parents' life like? And there's no uncles there to tell you, oh, you know, back when we were kids, this is what we do. There's none none of that. Nobody is helping you remember. You are completely out on your own. And I also look at it as as, as the way he tells the story, each individual sections, each little anecdote, each observation, each insight. It's like a, a beautiful quilt that you're, you're just focusing on each square. And when you look at it, it's like, oh, that is such a great story. That is such like an interesting one. And sometimes it's very funny. And then you realize that's hilarious. And then you're like, oh, that's so true. Like, you know, it's so, and then you're like, oh, I'm now I'm really sad because it's like, that is like, why are people so mean? And then you just kind of have all these little, little pieces and, and all of them make up your life and and it ends up like you know you can individually focus on each of the stories and then they make up this beautiful blanket that is Daniel himself and his life and um you can see I I actually Corinne again I bought this book I I don't usually buy books after I read them but I bought it just because I want to be able to savor all the little pieces I just want to pick it up one day and just read a little bit and just like enjoy it and and sit with it and think about it. And this is the kind of book it is. It's just every single sentence is so, it it all contributes to that bigger story and and all of it is needed because Daniel, like any person is complex. There is a lot more to him than just that one story that you, you, you may think of as a typical immigrant, a typical refugee story. So it's such a beautiful book. I really urge everyone to read it. It's, I love this so much. Again, it is Everything Said is Untrue by Daniel Dayari. Thanks, Virginia. I feel like that book just shot to the top of my uh, to-read list. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> right. Um, I'm excited because I don't actually know what, what anyone picked today. <laughs> so, Sadie, what have you got for us? <laughs> Um, yes, so the book that I uh, picked today, I know Fiona has talked about this author, um, I believe, on our book chat before, um, I believe, Pride. Um, so this is a book by Evie Zavoy, and it is called American Street. Um, and it tells the story 
of Fabiola. And Fabiola is a 16-year-old uh, from Haiti, from Port-au-Prince in Haiti. And the book starts off with her and her mother in an airport on their way to Detroit. And they're in New York. And Fabiola is now alone. And she's not quite sure how this happened. Um, one second, her and her mother were together. They were ready to go through customs, go through immigration and get on the plane to go and stay and live with um, her aunt and her cousins in Detroit. And then before she knows what happens, her mother is taken and she is alone. Now, Fabiola was born in the States. Uh, her mother made sure that she was born in the States. So she is allowed to come into the country. But what she soon learns is that her mother is not, and her mother has been detained. Um, she gets on the plane to Detroit because she doesn't really know what else to do. Uh, she has no family in New York. She has no one that she can contact. Uh, her only connections are her family in Detroit. So she gets on the plane. She goes to Detroit. She gets off. She gets her bags. She goes to meet her cousins and her aunts. And right away, she says, she tells them, my mom's not here. She's supposed to be here and she's not here. I don't know what to do. Her cousins, who she hasn't seen since they were babies, they quickly say, it's a, we'll figure it out. Just come back to the house with us. We're going to figure everything out. So they take her back to their house. It's unfamiliar to her. It, it doesn't smell the same. It doesn't feel the same. No one is there to welcome her. In Haiti, they had a big going away party before her and her mother left. Whenever anyone comes to stay, family gathers and makes meals for them and welcomes them into their homes. And here there's nothing. Her aunt is sleeping. Her cousins just kind of leave her there to fend for herself. Uh, she eventually tells her aunt what happened and her aunt tells her that she will figure it out. Don't worry about it. I will make sure that we get your mother here. Your mother is coming. We will make sure that happens. Still a bit unsure of herself, but not really sure what else to do. Fabiola decides to go about life. Um, she has been registered in school, so she starts school the next day. She starts to learn a little bit more about her family in Detroit, a little bit more about her cousins, who are not exactly the way that she imagined them. They're not exactly the way that she remembered them. Uh, they're a lot louder. They're a lot harsher. They're a lot more outspoken uh, than she pictured them and remembered them being. They have a reputation in their school. They have a reputation for fighting. They have a reputation for being the ones that you need to fear. And Fabiola doesn't exactly understand why, uh, but when she enters this school, that reputation starts to be attached to her as well. And she's not quite sure uh, what to do with that. So one day, Fabiola is approached by a woman across the street from her school. And at first she's very hesitant. She's not sure she wants to speak with this woman, um, but she does. Uh, the woman offers to buy her some food. And so she goes to a cafe and this woman explains that she can help Fabiola get her mother back to her. And this woman is a detective and she's investigating the death of a young white teenager who died from taking bad drugs. And the detective is sure that she knows who sold the drugs, but she can't prove it. She just can't quite prove who it was. And the person that she thinks it was is actually Fabiola's cousin's 
boyfriend, Dre. Fabiola has met him a couple times. Um, I will warn everyone that this part of the story does involve abuse. It does um, involve a very abusive relationship and the behaviors and what occurs in this relationship are described in the book. If that is a trigger for you, um, I would suggest that maybe you stay away um, or skip over those parts. But Fabiola has met Dre. He is abusive to her cousin. He hits her. He hurts her emotionally and physically. And honestly, Fabiola would absolutely love to sell him out to the cops and get him arrested and get him out of her cousin's life. So she takes the detective's card and she decides that she's going to try and figure out a way that she can she can get that proof, she can get that evidence. Now, amongst all of these um, stories and this uh, investigation, Fabiola has been able to find a bit of happiness, and that comes in the form of Kasim. And Kasim is actually one of Dre's friends, but is the complete opposite of Dre. He is kind, he is gentle, he is very, very interested in Fabiola, and reluctantly, but eventually she she um, decides to go out with him and she finds happiness with him. And so in these moments, Fabiola is very, very torn. She is happy with Kasim, but she still doesn't have her mother with her. And that is her main concern is getting her mother home. So as the story goes on, Fabiola starts to learn things about her family, about the death of her uncle and how it might not have just been an accident, about the connection that her family has to the death of the white girl who took the drugs. Fabiola has to make decisions, and they don't always turn out for the better. They don't always turn out the way that she wants them to. It is a very real book. I think that it um, Evie Zavoy does a really good job of just presenting the situation in a very real way. She doesn't try to filter it. She doesn't try to censor it. She just presents that situation and that that life kind of represents the life that people have to turn to sometimes or choose to turn to or, or are forced to turn to in order to survive. So if you're looking for a story that's very real, that does talk about the expectations that someone has when they're immigrating to a country and how those expectations might not be met um, in exactly the way that they think that they're going to be. That pull of what home is, where is home and what exactly does it mean to be home? Fabiola struggles with that because she in herself was happy in Haiti. And so she struggles with a choice that her mother who is now not there to guide her through. Um, has made for her. Uh, so yeah, I would definitely uh, recommend American Street by E.B. Savoy. Thanks, Sadie. Just reminded me how much I enjoyed Pride. Um, and I find that sometimes, um, you know, YA romances, like sometimes leave a bad taste in my mouth, but I feel like she's she writes romance so well, like that even like as someone who doesn't really like teen romance, I was just very engaged. All right, so um, I'm gonna go in a roundabout way to our question of the day. Books are heavy. <laughs> if you like physically collecting books, it is a pain to move. 
to decide what books are important. Um, are you going to bring them with you? Are you going to leave them in a box in your parents' closet? Um, <laughs> and then regret it and be like, where is that book? It happens to me all the time. And then, of course, when you are traveling and you know you're coming back to the same place, how much space do you allow books to take up? Are you, do you do the e-reader because you don't want to carry heft around those heavy books? Do you buy books in the airport? I would love to hear about each of you. When you travel, do you pack books? I always bring books when I travel, no matter what. I, I always bring books. Um, depending on the type of traveling I'm doing, I don't always get to them. This is something I've, I've discovered um, in the last few years when I've traveled overseas. I, I always plan so many books. Um, I actually have quite a, a fun time in like the weeks leading up to my trip, deciding which books I'm going to bring with me. Um, and I do use an e-reader. And so I don't necessarily have to worry about the heaviness of what I'm bringing. Um, that is one thing that uh, I don't bring physical books with me anymore unless I am driving somewhere. But I do put uh, quite a few books on my e-reader. And yes, I, I, I have fun choosing them and deciding which ones I'm going to bring. Um, but I don't always get to them. I said, depending on when I go overseas, um, usually because it's just so busy. I have so much. Uh, my traveling does not usually involve sitting on a beach or by a pool. That's not the kind of traveling that I enjoy to do. So it uh, it's usually quite busy. Uh, so I don't always get a chance to read, but I do always bring books. How about you, Karine? I'm like physical books only. So yeah, I usually do pack a couple of bricks in my suitcase that I lug around through the airport, up the B&B, &B, like everywhere with me. Um, I usually, it's about like a, I do, I pack very, very light carry on only doesn't matter for how long I'm going for carry on only. Um, so it's usually about like one third books and then like two thirds clothing and then like toothbrush on top and then you're fine. Um, but I also tend to buy a lot of books when I am on vacation. So you have to usually I end up having to like buy a second bag or something like that to kind of cart them around with me. But I love everywhere that I travel. I love going to a bookstore and just kind of like seeing what they've got and maybe picking out a special book that every time I look at it or every time that I read it reminds me of that particular trip. I, I agree. I like to buy books when I'm when I'm traveling, but like often in secondhand stores. And I'm thinking specifically about going to Portland and like packing all of these books to read while I was there and then going to the secondhand store and uh, coming back with like three times as many books as I had packed. <laughs> Virginia? So, you know, I don't travel. <laughs> Both my husband and I are not travel people so we don't travel so this is not really a issue for most of us um if we ever go places it's always a road trip like so somewhere like that we can drive to like i don't remember the last time i took a plane i don't now nah, it's been years um so yes but that definitely for any road trips and we always do like we're basically like go travel is about the road trip itself and then when we get there it's whatever like it it can be like middle of nowhere it doesn't matter to us we do the same thing we just you know travel so that we can go somewhere to do the same thing 
which is sit in the place and do nothing, which, and you know, so that's basically what it is. So yes, we do pack books. Definitely having a e-reader, super easy, super, um, you know, convenient. Um, but you know, like we do pack like quite a lot of books because we're also very light travelers. Like we don't really need a lot of clothes or anything like that. So it's very much filled with books. And just like you, Fiona, part of the trip usually is to the, before we go on the trip is to look up where the used bookstores, you know, in that whatever city or whatever town it is. So that's usually what we do. So yes, we do go and and find treasures in the used bookstore. So that's what we will end up doing. So generally come back with more books than I left with. So yeah. I'm so glad you two found each other. I know, right? Because it would be very complicated. If one of us really like to travel and the other one doesn't, that it won't work. So two kindred kindred spirits. What about you, Liz? Is your is your bag filled with books? Not going. Um, well, filled with books in the e-reader that like Sadie, I may or may not get to at all. And that's mostly during the travel part of it, to and from. Um, not really so much during the trip. Um, yeah, but Coming back, though, that's a different story. So um, my husband and I love to travel. And what we have started doing is buying a book um, that's representative of the place that we went to. Um, so individually, before we met each other, we had each bought books um, during separate travels from Southeast Asia, for example. So when I was in Angkor Wat, I bought a book about all of the ruins and the, the buildings in, in Angkor Wat. Um, and then when we went to Chicago, we um, bought a copy of Devil in the White City, which is kind of an iconic um, story, oddly enough, because it's all about murder, um, coming out of that location. So now we kind of have a little bit of a collection um, from our travels. So yeah, yeah, it, it's nice to be able to combine the two things, but not so much reading while we are there. I love that. I absolutely love the idea of, yeah, like of buying something very specific to that to that place that you can have to remember the trip. Um, I just want to put in one more mention of audiobooks because I know I'm the a bit of the representative, but that is the most important thing for me when I travel is making sure that I've got some audiobooks downloaded. Usually, just I just listen to them on the plane or if it's a road trip while driving and then get there and forget about them entirely. But that's, I wouldn't leave for a trip without having several audiobooks loaded. Very important. All right, if nobody has any objections, I'm gonna move on to my book um, or else I'll forget everything that I was gonna say. <laughs> so um, my book needs some uh, preamble of why I've chosen it for today because it is Displacement by Kiku. Kiku Hughes, which is actually about uh, Japanese internment camps in the US. So main character in the story um, is actually fourth generation American. This is from an American perspective. So it's actually her great grandparents who would have been immigrants to the US. Uh, but I think it's an interesting story to note for this episode because it really brings up who we consider to be immigrants. So of course, Japanese internment happened in US and Canada during World War II. And there's this idea that, you know, it didn't matter when you came to the States. Um, if you were 
1-6 Japanese, you were put in an internment camp with this idea that your loyalty could still be to Japan over the States. So I do, I mean, I'm, I'm justifying this now because it was something that really kind of slipped my mind when I chose this book. Who do I think of as immigrants? And it is interesting to note that often white immigrants, and if you come from an English uh, language, you already speak English, um, or you come from a country that speaks English, you know, you and your family are not an immigrant for very long, not perceived to be an immigrant for very long. Uh, stories about Japanese internment really show the flip side of that. Um, and there are a lot of great books about Japanese internment from the Canadian and the American perspective. I believe that Kareen talked about Obasan previously, and there's a lot of good, there's some other good graphic novels out there right now. Um, I also read They Call This Enemy by George Takai, which was very good, uh, but it sort of went out of my head faster than this one did. And I also really love the art in this one. So this is what I went with. Okay. Um, so this book is kind of, it's a little bit autobiographical uh, from the creator's perspective. And she is visiting San Francisco with her mother. And her mother's really excited because she wants to go see her mother's childhood home in San Francisco from before her family was taken uh, to, to be interned. So uh, her mom's really excited about it and Kiku is not so excited about it. And then when they get there, it's been leveled. It is a shopping mall and her mom's really disappointed. Suddenly a haze falls over the scene um, and Kiku is transported in what turns out to be in time so I believe Virginia also talked about um, Kindred recently, and I was really excited because I got the reference that it's actually this transportation or displacement is happening uh, in the same way that it does in Octavia Butler's book Kindred, where the character is sort of ripped out of time and pulled back to a time that her um, ancestor, in this case her grandmother, lived. So... This happens to Kiku a couple of times. She doesn't know what's going on. Um, and eventually she's pulled back in time to 1943 for an extended period. She is taken along with her grandmother and many under other Japanese Americans to, uh, to a camp in California. And they're later moved to Topaz in Utah. It's a very understated story. I really liked the layer of it being about this uh, fourth generation Japanese American revisiting the experience of her grandmother um, in the internment camp. And that layer of reflection about the author's uh, identity. And on top of that, she also ties it into um, the current situation and specifically looking at the Trump administration and the people being interned on the border to Mexico. I thought that was really meaningful. It is a little bit of a quiet story and I'm gonna show you the art because you always gotta see the colors, it's important. Just, just beautiful and atmospheric, a lot of these sort of like shots of, of mountains. And, um, you know, of course that's important because we get a feel for where these internment camps 
were. And, you know, this is an American perspective, but of course there's a lot of parallels to the Canadian experience um, and the types of places that these camps were in, you know, which were a lot like in the interior, in like places where it's very hot in the summer and very cold in the winter. It was barren. It wasn't easy to grow things. Um, so I appreciate seeing all of that scenery, but I, I really appreciated the author's perspective of this because it is something, there's a lot of literature out there. And I feel like, I think um, Virginia was saying the importance of, of multiple narratives. And even though it's a very like specific story, going back and hearing different families and then especially having this perspective from someone a few generations later and realizing how it was still affecting their life was very powerful. I enjoyed it a lot. And it was one of those books that after I put it down, I thought, okay, I got to go find out more about this. I need to look up specific dates and places. And, oh, isn't there, um, wasn't there the Chinese Exclusion Act? How do these things factor into she brings up the model minority myth so it was very much for me one of those sparks for like I want to learn more which is my favorite kind of book highly recommended I will pass it off to someone else now we still got Kareen and Liz to go Liz want to go for it <laughs> thanks Fiona yeah that was definitely a great book uh, displacement I do concur about that all right, so um, I have something a little bit uh, different in that it's not a graphic novel. Um, however, it is also a memoir. <laughs> so this one is called We Have Always Been Here. Uh, it's a queer Muslim memoir and it's by Samra Habib. Now, if this book sounds familiar to you, it's because it was the winner of CBC's Canada Reads in 2020 uh, amongst uh, various other accolades. Now, Habib is an Ahmadi Muslim, and she was born in Pakistan. And unfortunately, while her family was in Pakistan, because they were Ahmadi, they were targeted by Islamic extremists. So they faced religious persecution in their home country. Fast forward to when the family came to Canada as refugees when Habib was a child. And despite being a child, she had to grow up very quickly. She acted as an English translator for her family. So there was sort of that shift in dynamic uh, in terms of um, you know, who was taking care of the family in some ways. And also there was a shift in the types of anxieties that she faced. So whereas in Pakistan, uh, there was this fear for physical safety uh, because of their particular religious sect. And now that they became refugees in Canada, they faced poverty, still a pervading sense of otherness in that they didn't look like the other people in the community, uh, Toronto in this case, in which they lived. And as well, anxieties that came from Habib's culture. So... Um, her mother wanting to provide for her child as best a future as she could. She went with, with what she knew as a mother and as part of her Pakistani culture. Uh, and she had arranged a marriage for Samra to a cousin in order to please her mother and her family and do what she think 
what she thought was best, uh, despite not wanting to marry this person. Samra did enter into this marriage uh, when she was actually still in high school. Now, eventually she did get out of that marriage and she ended up marrying another man who she absolutely loved, but she was not quote unquote in love with. So she was attempting to find stability, uh, an anchor, and a place for herself in this country. Now, the subtitle, as mentioned, of this book is A Queer Muslim Memoir. So not only was Habib coming to terms with uh, being a refugee in Canada and dealing with cultural otherness, but she also felt a, a displacement with her own identity um, on a sexual level, um, as well as on a religious level. Now, she talks in the story about growing up, moving past her teenage years, moving past the arranged marriage and, and her other marriage, uh, and reconnecting ultimately with her Muslim identity. And not only that, finding a way through her religion by meeting other people who were like herself, not only in terms of that religion, but also other people who were queer, who were queer and Muslim, and also South Asian, which to her, to hear her describe it almost sounds like finding that unicorn, but when you are a unicorn yourself and then you find that other unicorn, then you know that's, that's like salvation. So as a result, she ended up coming to terms with her own personal identity. So on a religious level, on a sexual level, and also coming to terms with her autonomy as a woman, as a human being, which is just such a beautiful thing. And the way that she wrote this book was very, very direct. It wasn't flowery, and, and yet uh, there's a beauty in the way that she sparsely uses her words to tell her story. She doesn't try to uh, dramatize things or to um, kind of sensationalize her story. It, it is what it is. Uh, and you can tell that she is proud to own it because she has come so far. So I definitely think this was a worthy pick for the CBC Canada Reads in 2020. That is, We Have Always Been Here, A Queer Muslim Memoir by Samra Habib. Thanks, Liz. What an excellent pick. All right. Uh, last but not least. It's me. It's me. It's, it's me and Liz bringing the nonfiction to the Keep It Fictional podcast. Exactly right, Liz. We got to represent. We got to represent. So the system, the system of kind of white supremacy or, or a Western system tells certain stories about immigration. So as Virginia was mentioning in her book, when Daniel is telling his story and all the kids are saying that it's too outlandish or it certainly can't be true, there are certain stories that we accept or that we believe or that are part of the narrative of immigration. So there's the story of the worthy immigrant the person who is so good, who is allowed to come here. There's the story of gratitude, that everyone who comes here should be grateful for what they receive. There is the story of education or hard work, that if you do these two things, no matter where you come from, you can achieve success in this system or in this place. And then there is also the story of 
sensational, consumable trauma around immigration or the stories of why people immigrate. And so Carla Carnejo Villavincencio is here to spit in the face of all of those stories. She is here to take no prisoners about what we think about immigrants and more specifically what we think about undocumented people who come into the country without going through a particular system. So she herself, when she was 18 months old, her parents left from Ecuador to go to the United States. And she did not join them until she was five years old. And so in her life, there is that trauma that starts it. Years later, she is the first, one of the first undocumented um, immigrants to graduate from Harvard. So she has told herself the story of that education that can lift her out of that trauma and be successful. And all of that kind of comes crashing down in 2016 as the election results come in and she realizes that Trump has won and what that means for not only the country, but her personally as someone that is on DACA, that is a dreamer that has spent her life kind of pursuing this education so that she can lift herself up. What she does is on her hand in Sharpie, she writes down the number of her immigration lawyer and sets off on a cross-country journey through the United States to look at the lives of undocumented Americans. Um, what follows is what Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez calls an immigration punk manifesto. And what Carla herself describes it as a book of reported essays that are very rock and roll. Cornejo Villavincencio is not a journalist. She kind of has her own code of ethics about how she interacts with the people, um, but she is at her core a writer. And so as she approaches these stories or approaches these people, she comes at them with so much empathy and heart. She isn't there to be an impartial viewer trying to tell a narrative that would feel good for white readers. She is there to empathize and show you that these are all human beings. And the places that she goes and the stories that she tell kind of show you just how broken this system is. She's not interested in why these people came to America. She says that's boring. She's here about what happens when they get here and what's their experience. And so she highlights a couple of heartbreaking stories. She goes to New York where she talks with the undocumented workers who were recruited to clean up Ground Zero after 9-11, but because they were undocumented, did not get access to the healthcare, nor did they get access to the mental health services that they required afterwards. She goes to Miami, where she uh, enters into one of the botanicas, which have uh, medicinal herbs and potions for the people there. And that is because they cannot have access to any other healthcare providers because they are undocumented. Um, she goes to Flint, that, where she learns that in order to get the life-saving water that you need, because the tap water is contaminated, you will need state ID. And it kind of goes on where she travels to these different places, becomes involved in the, the community there, and tries to bring their story to light, that these are people, that they are trying to survive, and that the system both needs them and is stacked against them. And that there is no getting out of that. It is a challenging read. It is, it is difficult to be to have all these injustices put so bluntly. 
and to kind of, again, peel back that lie of what the system tells us of what immigration should be like and who immigrants are. The book is called Undocumented Americans by Carla Cornejo Villavincencio. And I think it is, it is if the purpose of reading is to kind of build empathy and understanding, I think it is unmissable. It is unmissable because she has no holds barred to tell you about the reality of it is and, and the reality of her own experience. Um, so yeah, I would highly, highly recommend picking it up. Thank you so much, Corrine. And thank you too for bringing in that piece uh, about undocumented immigrants because you know when I talk about things like stats and stuff, um, those are the stories that get missed. And yeah, that's my own my own bias as well to miss that. And and not just in America, but here in Canada as well. If we think about temporary workers and, and their experience here, it's all it's all part of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And it's great to have those nonfiction titles as well. Thank you, Liz and Kareen. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was great. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Keep It Fictional. Have a good day, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank mm-hmm. you.